Most of what I really understand about special education I've learned from my wife, who is a veteran special educator. She's a speech and language pathologist. She has uh, many, many years working uh, as in a specialty of young learners who are uh, on the autism spectrum. And the more I've learned over time about things like individualized education plans and um, the craft with which she approaches every new student on her caseload, I've, I've sort of long hypothesized that if we approached every learner in every learning context with the same uh, care and deep consideration, that we'd solve a lot about the, the failures in teaching and learning when we design for an average that doesn't quite exist. And and Kate um, Rosenblum, senior manager of learning design at Mouse, uh, my organization, um, talks about an experience she just had returning from an institute held by CAST, which is an amazing organization just outside of Boston who are really kind of the gatekeepers um, for all things universal design for learning. UDL is this area that really addresses exactly um, that issue of uh, designing more thoughtfully for every learner. And um, we go deep in this power up into UDL and Kate's experience at the Institute. And I thought it was just a great opportunity to uh, bring forward a, a part of what is now becoming her practice and uh, an amazing PD experience um, for those who might be interested to go and pursue it themselves. For reference, one of the things that Kate mentions in uh, this episode is a school district in Indiana, and I believe it's the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation um, that is in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, who have taken years uh, to integrate UDL. So I don't want anyone to leave this thinking that this is a short process. Um, this is really a, a matter of building new culture for approaching how we craft um, learning environments. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, meet Kate Rosenblum, one of my fam, uh, and somebody who contributes so much to the work at Mouse. Uh, find more about her on mouse.org. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate. Hi. It is so exciting to have you uh, on the podcast uh, for many, many reasons. You and I get to work together. Yes. Um, but not on the podcast. So no. it's great to have, I feel like I kind of have, this is my first time having family on on the podcast. Well, you had Alex on, but he's not family. Um, <laughs> I don't think he had a speaking role, though. No. Right? He was, he, I don't know. he has definitely provided sound assistance. Didn't he talk about the game? Um, yes, he did. Yep. <laughs> I, I forgot. See, now when you're big in Japan like me, this is what happens. Uh, we are no, talking. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super glad you made time for it. Um, we are talking about universal, not universal, <laughs> universal design for learning. Um, so we're talking today about universal design for learning. Uh, and 
And this came up because uh, you had in the works, um, you wrote a proposal to get some travel funding uh, to go and do some training up with CAST out of Boston. Um, and I was curious not only um, to talk about UDL, but also uh, to have a uh, use the power up not only to talk about UDL, but also um, just talk about the training experience. Um, so uh, for starters, tell us what you do at Mouse, because other than me, uh, the world, I think, would be interested in what a senior manager for learning design does. It's not obvious. <laughs> um, so for Mouse, I oversee all of our curriculum. Um, we we don't have a dedicated just curriculum team because we're small, but everybody on our learning design team contributes um, projects and ideas to our curriculum. And so I'm in charge of um, you know making sure that they go through our um, design process for curriculum and that they're kind of meeting our standards and guidelines and our learning tenets. And then I also um, write a lot of the curriculum, especially more of the large-scale projects um, that we do. And I also oversee any of the sort of educational multimedia that goes on the site as well. You bring in, I'm going to fill in gaps, you bring in subject matter experts uh, yes. to our work, which mm -hmm. is a super key part of what we do. Um, and then you do a lot of, you conduct play tests and are sort of the lead for uh, the formative feedback that comes back into the content development process. So uh, in the sort of analysis phase, looping that back into new iterations of things, um, there's Kate. Yeah. Well, that's one of the best parts because I get to take these activities into schools um, and actually test them with students. So I get to do both the sort of sitting at the desk aspect of education, but also the actually working with kids aspect, which is fun. Yeah. So I want to talk about this training that you went to, but before we do, to the extent that uh, we can be use um, mouse as uh, a vehicle for just talking a little bit about how PD can work at a learning organization. Um, tell me about the process for how for for other educators who are always looking for um, PD and looking for opportunities to uh, develop their practice and think about uh, how they can add dimension to their game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about how you came across the training and, and how you got interested in just what that process looks like at Mouse for getting into a PD like that. Because this was, was there was travel included mm -hmm. and you stayed over in... Uh, and uh, on the island of Boston, Boston, <laughs> Wakefield, yeah, Massachusetts. So not, not, not so exotic, but uh, Boston's a great place. And uh, anyway, so it took resources. Tell us about how the yeah. process went. Well, so as the person who kind of oversees the curriculum that we put out to our network, I'm always sort of interested in. Um, how we can make our curriculum the most effective and what the latest thinking is on that. And I especially am interested in getting the practical sort of advice for implementing best practices in um, 
in curriculum design. And so aside from just sort of reading journals and blogs and that kind of thing, um, I think I just went looking for, uh, I may even have been just Googling curriculum trainings or curriculum development conferences and came across CAST and Universal Design for Learning. And as soon as I read it, um, I thought it was it would be perfect for us. The impression that I got at first, and I can talk about how that changed, but that it was, um, I mean, universal design was something we talk about a lot at, at Mouse in terms of more like product design and that kind of thing, because we have a program where we have high school students designing things and they use universal design and design thinking. And so that's what struck me first was the title. And, you know, my impression initially was that it was for students that maybe had learning difficulties. Uh, and we have a large network of schools in New York City in particular uh, who work with special needs students. They're called District 75 schools. And so we they, they're one of our biggest sort of um, members, clients. and But we don't adapt our curriculum for them. I know all the teachers... Um, have been doing that on their own. And so when I saw this, I thought maybe this would be a great way to help those educators who are really loyal users of our content um, and they wouldn't have to do so much work on their end. Mm. And then I later found out it's not just for people with um, learning difficulties, but we can talk about that. Yeah. A little bit. So how does that, how does PD get, um, like how do you push something like that through at Mouse? Obviously, full disclosure, I know the answer. <laughs> right. But for for those interested, <laughs> well, I sent an email to you, um, <laughs> and uh, and to another team member, um, Meredith, and I brought it to your attention first in sort of a uh, informal way and said, "Hey, this sounds really great, and I'd love to explore this more." And you guys uh, looked it over and looked over the links that I sent um, and said, "This does sound great." put together a formal proposal. So I did that. And uh, about yeah, the proposal sort of consists of not just how much I think the budget might be, but also why Mouse would benefit from this. Mm. Um, and so I wrote a, a paragraph or so about why I thought Mouse's curriculum could benefit from it and sent it to you guys. Um, and then we had to look for funding um, because it was not free. And so... Then uh, I applied for a um, grant from Mozilla, and it wasn't the travel grant. They have another one. It's called, it might be even be called their professional development grant. Or, mm -hmm. But uh, I applied for funding from them, um, and it was a similar process where you talk about why this would benefit and um, send a budget, and it got approved. So yeah. I was able to go. So sadly... It was just announced publicly that uh, the Hive Learning Network in New York City, that fund out of the Mozilla Foundation is being sunsetted, uh, which is such a pretty it's way a of, of saying uh, sad. It, it sadly is closing. Uh, but you did have this really cool opportunity. And I think um, one of the reasons I, I it's um, important 
I think just to get the process out there is that um, I think Mouse is unique in that we give everybody an opportunity to sort of lobby for their own professional growth. And so you submit a short proposal to say why it's going to benefit the bottom line for the organization. And then um, similarly, everyone is also encouraged to go out and look for funds to to um, help you travel and help you do the thing. We always have uh, cash for professional development in a year, but it's never enough if everyone wants to do everything they can do. So um, so oftentimes people sort of advocate for themselves and go and, and find, as we say at uh, Mouse, uh, we take our passion and make it happen, yeah. um, which is a line from a song. It is. And Kate's going to sing it. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I was going to say that one thing that was really nice about that is going to be sad that the Hive, uh, the Mozilla's Hive Fund is no longer, is that they provided these small grants. So you're not going out and applying for, you know, 50 grand or something. They give out small grants of a thousand, two thousand dollars And so that's what made it possible. So hopefully we can... Find another place that does those yeah. kind of small scale. Yeah, that sort of micro micro grant towards something that is insanely practical is so rare and and mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that was kind of a, a gift that we had that here, and uh, I do hope that we find elsewhere that will make that kind of grant. So, Cast is is a pretty incredible organization up in uh, based just outside of Boston, I think, right? Yeah, just north of Boston. Um, and they have become kind of known as the um, the home, the sort of uh, founding um, central point, I guess, for UDL. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the way that they run as an organization is to provide professional development uh, in UDL. Let's jump into UDL. Uh, people think, I think, of UDL when they're thinking about accessibility mm-hmm. uh, in education. Um, how is it about that? And how is your mind also more open since the training about what exactly it's after? So as I mentioned before, when I first um, came across UDL, I was thinking of it as a way to help address learners with special needs, which it does. But it's really to help all learners, hence the universal design for learning. Um, you know, one thing that they talk about is this thing called the myth of the average um, and how nobody in the world is really um, average or kind of measures to these average standards so that when you design for the average, you're actually designing for nobody um, and that everybody actually has very different aptitudes in different subject areas or different ways of learning. Um, And so to account for that, we need to do a better job of making learning accessible for all people um, and not just for people with learning difficulties as we would, you know, or people that have individual education plans, but um, just anyone. When I was at the Institute, um, the thing that I kept thinking about is how much it would have benefited me. And, you know, I was a a student that got decent grades and and all of that. So, But I felt more like, I've always felt more like I just knew how to do school. And I don't necessarily feel like all of the things I learned in school stuck with me or Mm. that I became a particularly smarter person because of it. And that this would have been 
this UDL stuff would have been so great for me as somebody who who did school because I and did well in school because I was expected to by my family. Um, but I think this would have given me the chance to really engage with what I was learning. And I think that's the difference is that it's to engage people across a spectrum of interests and abilities and um, things that they're comfortable with. That kind of thing. So when we when I'm par I'm I'm recapturing what I think I heard you say, which is when we think of um, everyone as being unique and individualized, as we come to think of them, if we're working in special education, uh, if we think of every learner that way, we do just universally a better job at um, all kinds of things. But but certainly. Uh, creating a practice where uh, we're addressing learners' needs in the ways that uh, are most effective. Exactly. And they, the example that uh, sort of came out of this institute and that I used when I was talking to other mouse staff members is um, when you think about if you're having like an ice cream sundae party mm-hmm. for your friends, and the goal of my ice cream sundae party is that everyone will eat and enjoy an ice cream sundae, you can either, and what I think a lot of curriculum does now, um, is either uh, try to make a sundae that you think most people will like. Like the average person will like vanilla with Mm -hmm. chocolate syrup and a cherry on top. Um, Or you can put out a sort of make your own sundae buffet. And so which of those is most likely to reach my goal of having everybody eating and enjoying a sundae Mm. is not designing an average sundae that I think most people will like, but is giving people options, um, letting them identify the kinds of sundaes that they like Mm. (laughs) and um, and sort of. Um, you know, in both cases, you end up with a Sunday, but in one, you've gotten to sort of make it your own and it's something you know you're going to engage with. Whereas the other one, it's like maybe there's some people that will enjoy that Sunday, yeah. but there's going to be a lot that won't. Yeah. Which brings us to some of the challenges of UDL, right? Um, among them, Making a Sunday bar <laughs> is more resource intensive, mm-hmm. right, than um, just putting out sort of like industrializing a system by which people are going to enjoy, air quotes, uh, ice cream, right? right. Um, truth is everybody's going to sort of somewhat enjoy it if it's the assembly line version, uh, enjoy it a lot if it's the customized version. Mm-hmm. Um, but did did you talk at all in the institute about um, what that means for schools and learning programs in uh, – the context of resources? Yeah, we talked about implementation. I mean, it it's definitely, they don't try to hide the fact that it is going to take a lot more work on the part of educators. Um, it's a lot more um, effort. And it's, you know, it's really about a mind shift, a, a shift in how we think of, uh, of how to teach. And that that takes a lot of work, not just the actual work of writing the curriculum, but of constantly making sure you're addressing the the framework. Um, and they said that there's one school in particular, I think it's in Indiana um, or or a district um, that has sort of most fully implemented UDL, and it was like a five-year process. Mm. So this isn't something that 
you can go to one institute like I did and, and I can come back and next year we'll have all new curriculum in mouse. You know, they talked about setting smaller goals and um, picking one aspect of the framework, which if you look at the framework, there's there's a lot of different uh, points that you can choose to address and sort of picking one of those and implementing it in maybe one unit. Um, it's working slowly because it is, it's, it's a huge shift. Yeah. Know? I really appreciate that aspect of it, that they're talking about the longer arc mm -hmm. of how, what kind of, um, as you say, mind shift and cultural shift needs to take place in a school or in a learning program or in a museum um, in order for this to, to stick. Uh, you mentioned before that there was a point in your education where you sort of discovered that you were you were you might just be good at school as opposed to um, really into the yeah stuff deeply I was yeah deeply yeah. engaged by the things you were learning. Do you remember what point that was that you sort of discovered? Like oh, I think I'm just good at jumping hoops um, or these particular hoops. <laughs> Well, I think um, I think it came actually when I started n not doing so well. So actually, as a, f I always really struggled with math, and you know, but I was able to sort of um, always kind of last minute study up and do well on the tests mm -hmm. or homework or whatever. And then there came a point in high school when that wasn't the case um, because I really wasn't getting it, and that made me realize that, uh, you know, for some of these classes, what I was doing was just sort of coasting through class, not really paying attention. And then when it came time to, to do the tests, studying for the tests and doing well on those, mm -hmm. and that wasn't working in my math classes. Um, and the, it came became obvious to me then that, you know, this wasn't, I wasn't really absorbing stuff. Yeah. And also when I had, I had an amazing AP U.S. history teacher, shout out to Mrs. Morrison, um, <laughs> and uh, also an AP um, English teacher, Mr. Tunney, the same year. And they, you know, when you get a really great teacher who can, who can make you do that work and engage in stuff, uh, you know the difference that it's making the, as opposed to your classes where you're just studying for the test. Yeah. And I think that UDL is a way to help more teachers to really get kids to engage with the content and not just, you know, be working for a grade. Yeah. So that's my next question is we got the Sunday bar analogy, which is great. Um, how drastically does it change the practices that all of us, whether you're educators or not, all of us have, are experts by way of having gone through school. Um, how drastically does UDL change the practices that we all know? So um, you can answer that however. Like you can uh, let's pretend, uh, in, envision what that experience would have been should all of your educators been using UDL. Mm -hmm. um, or I don't know if there are easy ways to answer the question, but. Um, I think it's pretty drastic, but I don't want it to like turn people off. Mm. Um, and again, I, I still only have a basic understanding. Um, it's drastic in that, um, 
you're thinking about for every step of your lesson that you're giving, you're setting goals. One of the big um, things they emphasize in UDL is is very specific goal setting, um, but keeping the means to getting to that goal flexible. So that means like uh, if you want your students to demonstrate that they can, um, you know, write some basic HTML, then the steps to getting there are specific steps. Well, first I want them to show they can uh, use HTML to link to something, but the means by which they get to knowing how to use HTML to make a link in a website can be different. Mm. Um, and so you need to think about the ways you could engage. You know, some learners will want to go online and just research, how do I use HTML to make a link? Some learners might want to watch a video of someone else doing it. Some might want a one-on-one tutorial. And so you have to, you want to work towards providing all of those pathways for students to get to that goal. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, there's also like because of there's there's goal setting. There's also a lot more scaffolding that needs to go in, um, and so for instance, they gave the example of if by the end of the unit you want students to write a five paragraph essay on photosynthesis, for yes. instance, yeah, um, that is both it's providing a goal, but it's also asking for a specific inflexible means, which is the five paragraph essay. So that means you might want to first have a unit where students can learn how to write a five paragraph essay, and maybe it's about any topic they want. Then next you teach them about photosynthesis, and maybe they're allowed to express what they know about photosynthesis in a variety of different ways. And also they take in the information about what photosynthesis is in a variety Mm -hmm. of different ways. So that then by the end, they have been able to learn in their own way, how to do the five-paragraph essay. They've been able to demonstrate that they know all the things they should know about photosynthesis, and then they put them together and make the five-paragraph essay. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, if you're doing that for every lesson that you're developing and you're trying to think of goals for every step, it's definitely a lot of work and it's a big change, mm. which is why they tell you to take it slow. Yeah. Uh, there's a level of deliberateness I can just throw a NIS on there, um, that I think just doesn't necessarily come uh, instinctively. And I think that's the really important part about the practice as it translates to different environments. Have you thought about how it's going to change your practice as somebody who's developing content? Yeah, I have, especially because I think one of the challenges with tech, and in particular what, what Mouse does, is is we're often teaching them to use a specific tool or a specific software or, um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's, we have to really get creative about the means by which they can get there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learning about photosynthesis is definitely very different than learning um, how to put circuits together. Um, but, I've already been thinking about different different ways uh, we can we can get students there, and I think we've already done some of that because we um, we initially had at Mouse uh, a course on making circuitry that's your traditional sort of using breadboards and and jumper wires and resistors, but then we just recently finished our 
course on sewable tech where students are making circuits using sewable materials, so conductive thread and flat LEDs that they can sew down. Um, and they're still learning circuitry, so they learn what goes into a basic circuit. They learn what a switch is. At the end of both our traditional and our sewable course, they work with microcontrollers, Arduinos. Um, and so I think that's a great example of different entry points and pathways for learning mm. about the same the same subject, but that has the potential to engage uh, totally different students, um, but in the same topic. Yeah. So, you know, think, thinking about ways we can bring some of these ideas to tech um, is really important and how we can get students to learn about something like 3D design, but without requiring them to do it by using a certain tool, for instance. Mm -hmm. So these are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. And it's a challenge, I think, with tech because it can be really tool specific. Yeah. Uh, and it's really rich, too, with all of the conversation that uh, the world is having right now around computer science education. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the gripes with how it's been taught um, so far is that uh, we don't have enough variety for teaching similar concepts and um, enough of a sort of UDL-driven approach uh, to making sure that students have access from all different doorways. So mm -hmm. um, I love that. I wanted to ask you, too, about – I know that UDL has a focus um, also on the way that we – grow learners' capacity to become learners um, or expert learners. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the th the things that they talked about at this institute is, is uh, you know, they're known for sort of this more like ice cream sundae buffet uh, approach, <laughs> which I don't want people to get the impression that it means that every lesson needs to be like a buffet, but it's just more the analogy of providing uh, flexible ways of reaching the same goal. But that that's one of the things they're known for is, is about sort of creating these different pathways. But just as important to them is creating um, expert learners, which really means being super transparent about the process of teaching and learning. I think there's this tradition in education um, to try to do this almost like M. Night Shyamalan style <laughs> <laughs> lesson where like students where we're trying to trying to be like, surprise, you learned something or surprise, guess what? Now you know this thing. Right. Um, <laughs> and that that's actually not beneficial to our learners. Um, and when we're open and transparent about, here's what I'm hoping you guys will be able to do by the end of this lesson or in this step. Um, you know, so being transparent about the goals also helps students to know whether they've reached that goal, whether they might need to do more to get there. Um, and also, it's about building in ways for students to become experts at how they learn best. So, you know, students should know that they learn things better when they watch a video about it, or they uh, tend to be able to better express what they've learned when they can, uh, you know, perform a skit or whatever it is, mm -hmm. that there's nothing wrong with students knowing that about themselves, and it, and it can benefit them to get more out of 
when they're learning all the time, you know, not just in school or in their after school settings, but even when they're at home, you know, and they want to learn something, they'll know that maybe I should watch a video or maybe I need mm. to do some hands on work. Um, and so it's there's a lot of UDL that's really about creating, helping students to set goals, doing a lot of check-ins, opportunities for check-ins to see how they're feeling. Um, there's a big emphasis on mastery. So the idea that um, a student, one student is not going to be done learning something at the same time as someone else and that students should be able to continue exploring until they've mastered certain things um, and that there shouldn't be this sort of more strict timeline. Um, all things to empower learners to feel confident that they've learned stuff, that they belong in school or they belong in this educational program um, and that they're going to get stuff out of it and not just be good at school or get the impression that they're just not good at school. So mm. why should they try? Yeah. I always wished um, re related, it wasn't until graduate school that I was reading uh, books and articles with the phrase meaning making in it. And um, as soon as I read that phrase, I found myself wishing that someone much earlier in my life had said that phrase to me because I think when you think about meaning as something that we all are are empowered, uh, should be empowered to make on our own, it suddenly is this this sort of door that opens where you start to think about the best way for me to make meaning. So mm -hmm. if I know, for example, that um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna grow my understanding of a concept exponentially if I have a conversation with a group of people who are also trying to make meaning out of it. Um, by doing that, by having that conversation, uh, then I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna do that. And it wasn't until way later as a student that I discovered uh, that I had the power to go and do these things uh, for myself. Right. Um, so, and, and I think that benefits the entire spectrum of learners. So you've got on one side maybe a learner who feels like, well, I'll, you know, we're just reading this stuff out of a textbook. I'm not a good reader, um, so I'm not even going to bother, and they give up. Or on the other side of the spectrum, you've got students who are super advanced and they read through it before everyone else is done and then they get bored. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both of those those edges of the spectrum um, tend to then sort of disengage. Um, and so helping students sort of understand or giving them options then for pursuing what they can do next or knowing how they might better take in this knowledge and that they're going to have options to both take it in and express it. And it, so it addresses both ends of that spectrum and everyone in between and mm. helps them become more engaged, I yeah. think. I love that. The, um, the other thing I wanted to, before you go, because I know you are a busy <laughs> um, person, uh, the other thing that I wanted to get to was to tell me what what you understand of um, I know that UDL is based on a lot of research. Um, tell us what you guys talked about at the Institute. So the understanding I got was that cast was first came about with these um, researchers, brain researchers, so scientists, I believe at Harvard. Um, or maybe MIT, but anyway, that they were they were interested in doing research 
on what happens in the brain when we learn. And, you know, research shows that there are there's not one place that engages in our brain when we're learning that it's that it's several different places. And they kind of identified these three neural networks. Um, let me find my. Oh, here we go. Okay, they have these th- these three neural networks in our brain that are that are most involved in meaning making, as mm-hmm. you were saying, and learning. One is the recognition network, um, which is kind of in the back of the brain, which is how we take in facts and gather information, um, and also like the actual identification of words and letters and that kind of thing. Then there's the strategic network. Um, which they call the how of learning, which is the front of the brain. And that's sort of um, performing tasks tasks and expressing how we learn and also kind of writing and problem solving. Mm-hmm. And then there's the effective network, which is in the inner part of the brain, which has to do which deals with um, learner engagement and motivations and emotions. And they take that emotional part just as seriously as the other two, which I think is something that's not as traditional, um, is to think about that a student's emotion and how they're feeling that day will affect how they're learning and how they feel when they're learning. If they're thinking, oh, I I can't do this, Mm -hmm. um, or if they're feeling really happy. So that, that that's an important part too. And so they sort of looked at these three areas of the brain that are involved in learning and then designed this framework around addressing all of those different mm. networks. Yeah, it's really powerful. Uh, the emotional, I have a great example. I recently was in San Francisco and I had the pleasure of being able to visit SFMOMA. Mm. The difference between hanging out at a museum with no time uh, constraint and having to make it a flight, uh, you know, in a certain <laughs> yeah. number of hours right. is a totally different emotional frame uh, with which you're then taking into the learning experience. So if right. everything is like, oh, I got to get through modern art or this phase of modern art uh, in the back of your head, by the time I need to catch an Uber to the airport, uh, yeah. it's a very different experience than if you're. Uh, Sitting someplace with no time constraint with friends, uh, you know, uh, it's just uh, emotions are powerful. So I love that um, UDL started there. And I will in the show notes for the episode, I'll put some links to the research and then um, you also, I hope, can tell us about where else people can look for. I know CAST has a lot of this research linked from their website. Um, What else should we be looking at? Um, well, yeah, the cast the cast website not only has um, has resources, but that's where they actually list the framework. And I should say that they just came out with their version 2.0 of the framework, um, and that I think is just on their website. If you go to their to cast c a s t dot org and un, under their our work menu, um, they have a lot of stuff about UDL there, including the. Um, the framework. They have a book. Um, and I think there's like a UDL clearinghouse, um, information clearinghouse. Um, I would just, I would just Google it. Another, um, interesting thing is I don't know how much information like the NYC DOE has on it, but I know this is just as a point of interest that 
the District 75 schools, so those are the ones I mentioned earlier that are schools in New York City's Department of Education that focus on special needs students, I think that their big focus this year in their PD for their teachers is UDL. UDL, yeah. So, um, you know, you could probably find out more on their website or talk to some... Likely there's a curriculum specialist in whatever district you're working that has some connection with yeah. with UDL. So it's sweeping, everybody should it's sweeping the nation. It's um <laughs> sweeping the nation. Uh, so um Kate, thank you a ton for doing this. You're um not that we would I am gonna try and get our friends from cast on a future episode, but as a an educator in the nonprofit uh, learning space uh, worth it to you, the training, to go up to the Institute and, and make the trek? Do you think uh, everybody should do this? Yeah. Uh, if you have the means, um, it's it's not an inexpensive workshop, but it's really two days of hands-on work with the people who designed the framework. Um, and they sort of spend the first part talking about the theory behind it, and then you get to spend an entire day applying it. And in the training, they practice UDL practices. So they give you various ways to take in the information about UDL, um, various ways to try to apply it. Um, it's it's really, it was a pretty great, one of the better uh, PDs that I've been to. Awesome. Sure. Thank you for doing this, Kate. Thanks, Mark. Uh, if you want to learn more about Kate, you should go obviously to mouse.org. <laughs> yeah. And uh, from her staff bio, which is there. Anything else you wanted to shout out while we're. Uh, um, you're super into bread. Um, guys, bread. <laughs> shout out to bread. <laughs> what, where should I go for the best bread recipes? Oh my gosh. The recipes? Oh, I don't. Probably there's a, there's a book called Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast. Hello. That's really good. We should follow your bread Instagram. No, you don't need to do that. (laughs) I was going to say, though, I don't know if this will make it onto the podcast because it's not super related. But I was listening to an earlier episode of yours where you talked to the folks from the Educational Video Center, EBC. And you were talking about your background and how how you got to... uh, to mouse and we have very similar yeah backgrounds oh yeah because I was a film student yeah and then I in in college at a at a liberal arts college yeah and then got out and you know and was sure I was going to do video stuff and then got out and was like I don't really want to do video yeah. stuff and then started interning uh, in like. I found an internship at the San Francisco Film Society. Shout out to San Francisco Film Society yeah. in their in their sort of like family and educational department, and then went to grad school thinking I would do you know sort of children's television or media literacy. Well, stuff. so and let I, me ask: You eventually graduated from Teachers College, yes? And did you, when you were graduating as an undergraduate, was there ever a moment where you were like, you know what, I think I'm going to end up at Teachers College? No. Not, no. not for a minute. I was just talking to a high school student who is, does one of our mouse's programs called Design League was here, and they're applying to colleges and stuff now. And he was like, I, I don't even need to look at the other schools at this university. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an engineer. And maybe he does, but, but my colleague and I were talking to him about how life 
takes yeah. these crazy paths and you end up places you never thought yeah. you would. So. And I think I think that's one of the wonderful things about uh, not just about the makeup of the team at Mouse, um, but of m- so many learning organizations and educators in schools is these are people who know well uh, how crooked life's path um, can be and how you find passions in all kinds of ways. And that that at a fundamental level is something I um, I hope educators remind themselves of every day in what they bring, how they show up to students is like is to remember that inspiration is kind of everywhere and and what fascinates us and and brings us to work that we love uh, can come around all kinds of crazy corners. So um, anyway, yes, we do we do share <laughs> lots of that yeah. in common. And at some point, I am going to have an episode where we just talk with a bunch of educators with wacky uh, crooked path kind of backgrounds um, and all that it brings to their students uh, because I think it's super important. Kate, thank you for talking with us about UDL. I know you'll be back. I will. Um, And go crush the rest of your day. I will. Thanks, Kate. For more info about how you can sponsor No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and young man who I beat in a slam dunk contest in 2004. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthing.wordpress.com.